Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. The message to LGBT people that we're not eligible to be parents, we're a danger to children, we'll be bad role models, these terrible false tropes about LGBT people, those false defamatory myths are enough still in the air that I do worry that there's a particular stigma and harm, and it can drive people away. It reduces the pool of potential parents, and that's a terrible thing for the children who need good homes. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the 13th part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer, a civil rights attorney at Lambda Legal, about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. We've been talking about the court case of Fulton v. City of Philadelphia, in which a Catholic adoption agency asserted a religious liberty claim to essentially opt out of the city's non-discrimination policy by refusing to certify same-sex couples as potential foster parents. On June 17, 2021, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled in favor of the adoption agency, but on the narrow grounds that because the city has discretion to grant exceptions to the non-discrimination policy, it can't deny religious exemptions while approving non-religious ones. On this edition, Jenny and Outcaster Isha continue their conversation about the case. Hi, Jenny. Welcome back to Outcasting. Happy to do it. When we left off last time, we were talking about what it would mean for anti-discrimination laws if the Supreme Court were to rule that people or organizations could opt out of them based on religious beliefs. The Supreme Court didn't make that ruling in the Fulton case, but it also didn't squarely say that when equality and religious liberty come into conflict, equality is a higher value. The court seems to be avoiding that big question, so we're in a kind of limbo. The Fulton case seems similar in that respect to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case a few years ago, in which the court found a technical reason not to answer the big question. Yes, I think that's exactly right. The particular facts at issue were different. In the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the Supreme Court decided, with a number of the liberal justices agreeing, that there was evidence in the record of hostility to the religious beliefs of the baker in that case. And the legal test, as we've been discussing, says there can't be hostility to religion or anyone's religion in particular. So it was based on those facts in the record. From our perspective, those facts were a bit taken out of context and really did not show hostility to religion. But in any event, that was what the court said. And that approach caused the decision to be based on some unusual facts particular to that case. And as we were discussing in the Fulton case, the reason that a a different legal analysis was to be applied was this idea that there were um, the possibility of exemptions being given to some people, but not to Catholic social services. And if some people could have exemptions, then the court concluded, uh, then it's not generally applicable. Again, that's not really how we think the general applicability test, uh, how it has been applied in the past and doesn't really seem to make sense to us. But again, 
it was a way of deciding the case based on some facts particular to that particular case. And so it, again, the religious claimant wins, but not with the uh, victory that that they were seeking of a, a freedom to disregard non-discrimination laws. Both of those cases give us a conclusion that civil rights laws remain enforceable, and that's very, very important, but it does still leave the questions out there to be grappled with in future cases. Considering the fact that the ruling was based on the availability of these discretionary exemptions, why do you think the city put them in place? This was a case that could have resolved the big question squarely, but it didn't. Well, sometimes it's difficult to imagine what was in the mind of the folks that were drawing up that contract, but I think it is probably the case that the discretion was there because sometimes there can be situations where, for example, there can be protection against discrimination based on disability where various disabilities would not preclude a person or a couple uh, from being really wonderful foster or adoptive parents. But there could be some disabilities that would mean it would be quite difficult for that person or the couple to provide an appropriate home. Sometimes within the foster and adoption context, you have racial matching, you know, which is something that is seen uh, sometimes as being really good for the child. You know, there could be all sorts of reasons why there might be exemptions. And the way the city system worked was that with respect to child placing decisions, exemptions were sometimes appropriate. The process of matching children with uh, prospective parents is different from the certification process. And so it does seem that there may have been some confusion there uh, that the court Maybe it was innocent confusion. Maybe it was intentional confusion. We don't exactly know. But I think what's most puzzling here or what causes that part of the decision to not be fully persuasive to some of us is that these discretionary exemptions had never been used. So it was a, a theoretical possibility that there could have been exemptions, but there weren't any actually in fact. So Catholic Social Services was not, in fact, being treated less well than anybody else. So to a certain extent, it seems a little bit contrived. I think the bottom line is the way the court approached it seemed designed to resolve this particular case on as narrow grounds as possible. And that is what the court is supposed to do. The courts are supposed to decide cases as narrowly as possible. Don't go changing the rules when you don't need to. That is kind of what the court did here, even if some elements of the analysis seemed not as persuasive as they could be. One reason this ruling seems troubling is that the court appeared to dismiss the harms that are caused by the Catholic Adoption Agency's discrimination. Tell us about that in the context of the legal reasoning in this decision. Yes, well, one of the things that seemed puzzling and a bit dismaying to us was that the court approached this really from the perspective of Catholic social services and devoted quite a bit of text uh, in the majority to the burdens that the agency described to its exercise of religion. And what seems like the wrong focus from our perspective is that this is the work of the city and the Catholic social services does not need to seek a city contract. The city ought to be able, in our view, to select agencies that will do the work for the city the way the city feels it 
should do the work to not have discrimination against anyone. Catholic social services could have been free to provide services the way it wants to provide them with respect to children that are placed in its care, perhaps by families or individuals who want the services of that agency to place their child, say, with another Catholic family. That would be the work of the agency, and it remains free to do that work you know, within some limits to make sure that, you know, the children are are not harmed. But it really is puzzling that the court accepted the framing of the issue that was presented by Catholic Social Services. Some of what was missing in the case was examples of same-sex couples who were turned away and possibly also examples of children who were not placed in homes because Catholic Social Services turns parents away and thereby shrinks the pool of available uh, parents. And then also, of course, how are the children being treated that are in the group homes run by Catholic Social Services? So there were multiple different important interests that uh, we think are important in the case that did not get the attention in this in this case because this was a case brought by Catholic Social Services against the city. So those were the main parties. There were other participants in the case, uh, not just many friends of the court, but also a couple of community-based agencies that were bringing in the voices of of LGBT parents and and families and, uh, and children. But the court did not seem to really listen to those voices as it did the analysis in this case. This was a unanimous ruling, but there were three opinions a majority opinion, and two concurrences. Can you talk about what these kinds of opinions are, majority opinions and concurrences, and dissents? Yes, indeed. Well, so there was a majority opinion uh, that was written by Chief Justice Roberts, and uh, it was interesting because it was joined by some of the conservative justices and some of the liberal justices, and it was the, I would say, the narrowest decision that decided the case based on the facts, as we've been discussing. So a majority opinion is an opinion that has at least five members of the of the nine-member court that agree with that approach and that join that opinion. That makes it the ruling. That's what the court actually decided, and cases that come later uh, can be governed by that opinion because that was the ruling of the court. Now, a concurring opinion is an opinion that uses different reasoning but agrees with the result. A concurring opinion adds to the number of votes approving of the result, but generally adds different reasoning. And then, of course, dissenting opinions uh, disagree and uh, present their own reasoning, the why they disagree, and those votes do not join with the majority uh, votes. So you can end up whatever number of votes you have, it has to add up to nine because there are nine members of the court uh, if they are all uh, participating. And as I said, so a majority has to have at least five and, you know, there, there's no particular limit on how many concurring or dissenting opinions there are. And sometimes uh, justices will concur in part and dissent in part. Uh, and as we saw in the Fulton case, we can have opinions written by different justices, and sometimes they will join in other opinions and then write their own, and then some will have written their own and then join in the other one. And so you you end up sometimes needing to chart out who wrote what, who joined what, and then you try to figure out how each one of them, uh, how are they thinking about the issues? Because especially in a case like this, where 
the big issues are not decided. We are all trying to study the tea leaves and who wrote what, who joined what, what do they think, what might they do in a future case? As Justice Alito said in his separate concurring opinion, by dodging the main issue again here and deciding the case based on something that the city of Philadelphia can so easily change, uh, the, the issues may be back up at the court you know, could be quite soon. So that's why we, we want to try to get into the head of each justice so that we can try to predict what might happen in the future. And for those of us who are lawyers working on cases like this, we want to understand how the different justices think because we want to then think about how we should argue a case to resonate with their thinking. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Isha is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. Some people seemed surprised that the court's three liberals, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer, joined with the conservatives in a case like this that didn't uphold LGBTQ equality. Yes, but as we've been discussing, the case was decided on narrow grounds, specific factual grounds to this case, and the result is that Philadelphia's non-discrimination law is still enforceable and civil rights laws that exist at every level of government all over the country are still enforceable. So the three justices that joined with the chief justice and two of the other uh, justices decided the case without, if you will, um, upsetting the apple cart. And those of us who are quite concerned that the legal test might be changed and might become much easier to discriminate for religious reasons breathed a big sigh of relief. So I think the joining together of three liberals with three conservatives means that uh, civil rights laws lived uh, to do their work another day. Justice Amy Coney Barrett wrote a concurring opinion joined by Brett Kavanaugh and for the most part, Stephen Breyer. What was the essence of that concurrence? Yes, it's a very interesting opinion. And, and it's particularly interesting because Justice Barrett is somebody who in her work as a lawyer and then some of her work as a judge on the Court of Appeal has been very focused on the importance of religious liberty and often expressed views that religious liberty should be protected in a more robust manner. What she wrote in her concurring opinion is that she might agree and, and she maybe does agree that the existing legal test should be changed and she hasn't yet come to a conclusion about what would replace the current test. And it's interesting that Justice Kavanaugh joined her in that view. So they're both critical of the existing legal test, but seem to have spent some time thinking about how it might open a Pandora's box, really, and who might be at risk of experiencing discrimination if the legal test were changed so that people could act for religious reasons despite laws that would otherwise apply. I don't know, of course, uh, what their private conversations were or what uh, their personal concerns might be. Justice Barrett, by reputation anyway, participates in a type of charismatic Christian denomination 
that is not the larger part of, of um, American Christianity. She might have an awareness that if the rules are changed so people can act more based on religion, including discriminating more based on religion, some of the folks that are very close to her, members of her family or or her religious community might find themselves on the receiving end of some of that discrimination, some religion-based exclusion. This is an area that is complicated because, at least from our perspective, equal rights laws, civil rights laws are there to require that everyone is treated equally. If some people are included, then other people should be included too. People should not be treated as less than based on their race, their color, their national origin, their religion. That's part of the core civil rights protection that was adopted at the federal level in the mid-60s. So I think that some of these questions are harder than they might appear at first blush for thoughtful folks who are conservative, who believe very strongly in religious liberty, but don't necessarily want to open the door to a lot of religion-based discrimination against anyone, but including maybe themselves. Then there was a concurrence by Justice Samuel Alito, joined by Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch, rather predictably urging that the court overturn the Smith decision and answer the big question in this case. Tell us about that. Yes, yes. So I've I've mentioned an important case that was decided by the Supreme Court in 1990. That's the Smith decision. That was a, a case that arose because um, there was a man, a Native American man, who had been working as, as a drug counselor, a substance abuse counselor, and part of his uh, job responsibilities are not to abuse drugs. Well, part of his religious practice as part of his particular Native American faith involved uh, ingesting peyote, the psychedelic substance, and he did that for religious reasons as part of a religious ceremony, but when his boss came to know that, he was fired, uh, and he applied for unemployment benefits because he'd been fired and he claimed that it was a wrongful dismissal and he you know he was good at his job but he did have this important religious practice and the supreme court decided that case by changing the doctrine the doctrine as i i said before used to give special solicitude to religious rights but included the idea that religious freedom doesn't include a license to harm other people and does involve a kind of balancing test. The government can enforce rules, but people can make a religious claim. And in 1990, with this Smith case, Justice Scalia, uh, who himself was very much a man of faith and very conservative, he said that his understanding of the doctrine is that the founders intended that government should be able to enforce laws as long as the laws are not hostile to religion, as long as they pl- apply equally to everyone, then the government should be able to enforce them. Because otherwise, each person who has religious beliefs can be a law unto himself or herself. The idea being that our country is religiously pluralistic, but with religious beliefs being so diverse, government needs to be neutral in looking at people's religious beliefs and respectful when uh, treating people's religious beliefs. As long as those beliefs are sincerely held, then government needs to treat everybody the same. And so if the government were to need to meet the highest standards of proof to enforce any law that generally applies to everyone without 
without picking on religion, without being hostile to religion, it could become very, very difficult to run society for society to operate. So Justice Scalia's opinion, the Smith decision, articulated this approach to make it easier for government to function. Now, some people have observed that this was a case in which the religious belief at issue was a minority faith belief and that the claimant also was was part of a minority group within society as, as a Native American man. And perhaps he commanded less respect than would have been the case if it was a different faith. Of course, we'll, we'll never know. But what we see in the concurring opinion written by Justice Alito that was joined by Justices Thomas and Gorsuch is a view that the Smith decision was just a mistake and that the reasoning isn't persuasive. The cases that were decided before Smith that gave greater protection to religion were the appropriate way of looking at things. And in the view of of these justices, the issue was squarely presented. It's been presented multiple times before, and the court should not keep dodging it, that it should be decided that Smith was wrongly decided, and the court should fix the problem, and it should fix the problem by adopting a strict scrutiny test that would give the greatest amount of protection to people's religious, not just religious beliefs, which are fully protected, but the way they conduct themselves, the things that they do in furtherance of their religion. According to Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, that's the appropriate legal standard, and the court should just do the job, get it done now, <laughs> stop wasting time, and 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 protect religion more robustly than than what the Smith test, what uh, Justice Scalia's, the late Justice Scalia's approach currently does. We've talked recently about original intent, an approach to interpreting the Constitution favored by many conservatives. What role did original intent play in this case? Yes, well, that's the argument about how we should understand the First Amendment. What type of work does the free exercise of religion clause do? What did the founders intend? Did they intend to have the right of religious free exercise be the first among many, the right that prevails as against other rights, including against the rights of some other people to be treated equally? Or are these different rights really equal? The free exercise right, very important, but one person's right to exercise their religion finds a limit when continuing to act in a particular way would harm somebody else or cause somebody else to be unequal. So there's a lot of looking at the history to try to discern what the founders intended when they adopted the First Amendment, a lot of searching to try to understand the relationship between the right of free exercise of religion on the one hand and the Establishment Clause on the other hand that says the government shall not favor any particular religious sect over others, and also shall not favor religion over non-religion. And that's that's among the issues that we think was quite important and was not addressed in the Fulton case. Why should the city of Philadelphia have to give a contract and do business with a particular religious entity that says, we claim a right to do this work according to our religion, and we claim a right to take tax money and to have access to children that are in city uh, care to exercise our religion. You know, so many of us think there's a very serious establishment clause uh, issue in there. So the argument is both what did the founders intend 
and how should that play out in our modern society? Our, our modern society has a very different structure. Our population is very different now. And so we have a court right now that is very conservative with a supermajority of conservative jurists, but they don't all look at things exactly the same way. And that's part of the argument. We talked a little earlier about the fact that the majority opinion sort of glossed over the harms that could be caused by allowing Catholic social services to discriminate against same-sex couples. Let's talk about the effects on prospective same-sex parents. Yeah, well, I think the, the effects of the decision are going to be a little different depending on where people live. And so first of all, of course, the effects will depend somewhat on whether the city of Philadelphia decides to change its contract and whether we have more litigation. But based on where things stand right now, the Supreme Court said that same-sex couples in Philadelphia should just go to a different agency, that the city contracts with a couple dozen agencies, and most or many of them do not turn away same-sex couples. So those couples should just go to an agency that welcomes them, and they can be screened and certified and participate and provide a home to a child in need. The Supreme Court seems to say, no harm, no foul. But of course, that might or might, it might or might not operate that way in Philadelphia. Catholic Social Services may be operating in a particular area that is convenient for same-sex couples to get to, for some couples, and some of the other agencies may be at a distance. So it may create various types of burdens. You can have a situation where same-sex couples don't know about the Fulton case and don't know that Catholic Social Services discriminates in this way. It certainly is not a good experience for anyone to apply to be a foster or adoptive parent and be turned away based on just who they are. And we know that some people who go through that, that experience don't go looking for another agency. They just feel discouraged, especially for LGBT people, because many of us grow up with and experience the, the social hostility of our society. And being rejected in that way could just reinforce a message instead of encouraging people to try somewhere else. It, it could reinforce the idea that, no, you're you know, you're not good enough to be parents, just give up that dream and go do something else. We do worry about that. The most acute problem is likely to be in uh, smaller towns, in rural areas, or in areas where one or more conservative faith-based agencies really dominates the area. So I think the consequences, the impact, the harm to potential parents depends on where they live what the options are, and how much information they have. Overall, I think it's a terrible situation to have a government contractor discriminating against anyone. And in particular, I think the message to LGBT people that we're not eligible to be parents, we're a danger to children, we'll be bad role models. There are these terrible false tropes about LGBT people as parents. And those false defamatory myths are enough still in the air that I do worry that there's a particular stigma and harm in this context, and it can drive people away. And if that happens, when that happens, it reduces the pool of potential parents, and that's a terrible thing for the children who need good homes. We've run out of time again, Jenny, but we'll continue next time. Thanks. My pleasure.
That's it for this 13th part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Isha, Rose, Jada, Justin, Lil, Charlotte, Tim, Sasha, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sophis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and other major podcast sites. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.